0: What irritates me about dominion theology and um, um, Christian nationalism is that they all have this notion that good gets done through the exercise of power. Mm-hmm. And that is antithetical to all of the message of Scripture. Boom.
1: Okay, welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the true faith as best we can. And today, I thought we'd do a follow up on last week's uh, episode, which was a, re- a re-release of Nathan's sermon about the gospel, a passage in the Gospel of John, but um, applied toward the current topic of current issue of Christian nationalism. There was a nationalism in Jesus's day. Jewish nationalism, and he was calling people out for that, and uh, Nathan applied it to today's Christian nationalism, and I thought it might be good to just kind of tease out that more, the, the meaning of Christian nationalism, what is the challenge that it presents to us. So that's our aim for today. Nathan, maybe you could uh, help us get clear some clarity on what Christian nationalism is so that we're not uh, just labeling everything as Christian na- nationalism every time that maybe Christians are involved in the public square, the public yeah. sphere is, is every time Christians engage in the in in uh, uh, in, a, in a cause Christian nationalism. Every time Christians engage in the public sphere, is that Christian nationalism? What is what, what is Christian nationalism?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I've been wrestling with that a little bit myself. You know, I, it seems to be this idea. And uh, this is just my from my reading of others, um, but this idea that America as a nation needs to come in line with Christian values, that America was founded as a Christian nation by Christian people, and that um, if America follows the, the uh, biblical values, then it will be performing what God has now, will now are you, are for you, the country.
1: Okay, so are you saying America, there's a, there's, there's a distinction here I'd like to draw out. Okay, It would be one thing to say, it would be good for America just as it would be good for any country to come in line with Christian values. Is it saying that? Or is it saying, no, America was founded by Christians for the purpose of following God, and America, we owe it to ourselves, and, and America owes it to itself because of its heritage, to come in line with Christian values. Do you see the distinction? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, are you you're saying that there's a mandate from God that uh, Christians, when they have enough numbers or enough influence, should use that to bring the government of their country in line with Christian values, regardless? Or whether America, particularly, was founded like the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Might be almost seen as an inspired document.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are. Th- and, there's a distinction there. Yeah.
0: Well, and some and some would. I mean, that second one to me sounds so far fetched. It's mm-hmm. just, but I, I have to appreciate that my mindset. You know, I'm just not. A, um, I'm not influenced. I don't think much by this Christian nationalism idea or the sense that there's a manifest destiny for the U.S. Any more than for other countries. I mean, God obviously rules over the nations. Um, uh, And yet he does so in ways that are counterintuitive for us, maybe ways that we wouldn't do and don't particularly like in every case. At least that was the case with Israel that, you know, actually was a theocracy. And you would think, you know, God would always be on Israel's side, but he seems to have not oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is the... And in other cases, people don't understand. Uh
1: huh. And he would he would call forth a pagan ruler to be his servant, God's servant, for God's purposes. Right.
0: Exactly. So God seems to you know God speaks of uh, the Assyrian who is the tool in His hand. He speaks of Cyrus as His chosen one, Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler. Mm -hmm. So there there seems to be even over pagan leaders that God would declare himself as the final sovereign over them, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps despite uh, what they would even want, and um, that he's going to call them into account for the evil that they do, even though the evil that they do is, you know, contributory to his overall plan. Mm -hmm. um, So there's this paradox there, and we tend to think in, in really flat terms that God is with the good people. God does the good things. And then the bad people are on the other side and they're working for the devil. And, um, that dichotomy is, is very naive and simplistic and it doesn't really line up with the biblical narrative, um, that may chafe against some, but you know, the, the Bible isn't a morality book. Christianity isn't about, uh, acquiring virtues, uh, you know, we, we buy into maybe more of an enlightenment ideal, and then we try to baptize it. So, you know, during the enlightenment, especially, uh, you know, during the founding of the United States, that there's this idea that virtues have a transcendent quality. Virtues exist above and beyond, um, the gods, you know, that they are
1: a god in and of themselves. Uh, that. If you, you mean read, things like life, and like liberty?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you read these old documents, those words are capitalized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson capitalized words like, you know, um, life and liberty and truth and these kinds of, of virtues that were believed to, to kind of uh, exist above and beyond, uh, you know, in a platonic sort of a way that there's this realm of, of forms, of ideals, and that those transcend the physical realm and that we should bring ourselves into conformity to this this realm of ideals and so you know there's a there's a real here's the irony is, is that there's a a real Luciferian and pagan basis to the existence of the United States
1: do you mean by, when you say Luciferian I assume you mean it's rooted in rebellion against authority mm-hmm. and by, and I think that's a, right. that's what Luciferian means right? right. If you right. say Luciferian, you're talking about rooted in rebellion against authority.
0: Right. Well, yeah. The Luciferian ideal is that um, authority is to be questioned um, and to be evaluated in light of virtues that we have. And if authority doesn't serve the virtues, then we should overthrow the authority and replace it. Okay. Um does that sound familiar? You know, that... Um, and and it seems perhaps, you know, after years of, of uh, religious wars, centuries of religious wars in Europe, people were ready for a different idea. Uh, and so there's this deistic approach that says, you know, hey, if there's a creator out there, that's fine, but he just needs to stay out of our way. And uh, we need to, you know harness the laws of cause and effect. We need to become experts in in disciplines like politics. We need to wield those things for the good of humankind. So it's a humanistic ideal that says uh, the good of humankind is the goal and um, gods, if they serve that, they can stay. And if they get in the way, they can go. So there's this idea that Nobody has the right to some sort of implicit authority. um and that if anybody claims that or anybody attempts to abuse that, then it is incumbent on those who are under that authority to rise up, overthrow them, and take their place. So that that ideal, even as I say it, and even as you know someone may hear it, sounds right to us
2: mm-hmm.
0: because. That's what we were nursed on. Mm -hmm. That is the basis of the American ethic. Um, And it's what drives a lot of Christian nationalism. It's why we just have this constant unrest in the country, because everybody thinks they're the good guy who has to overthrow the bad guy. (coughs) You know, and so there's never this sense of of citizenship. contributing and participating because the most important thing that needs to happen is for the guy at the top to be taken out. You know, no good can come until the corrupt authority is overthrown. And so we don't, we don't stop and say, you know, how can, how can we act justly? How can we show mercy? How can we be people of grace? I mean, we do, I think some, but but when someone is in this kind of fervor where they just need to criticize what somebody else is doing, they need to point out the errors of someone else's way, someone who's an authority, and they, they can't get their brain, their mind off of the evil that someone else is doing. And they see themselves as performing God's will and a good work by relentlessly calling out the evil that somebody else is doing. Okay. But as they're doing that, they are falling victim, I think, to what Jesus warned us about, this plank in our eye, you know, that, w- that we spend so much time that we doing this and, and just obsessing over, you know, Bill Gates is trying to poison everybody and, you know, whatever mentality we may have that, that we think that organizationally America had had this maybe a short period of time where we were really in line with Christian values and life was better and we were flourishing and the church was growing and life was good, right? And, and that's just illusory, man. That's not true for one. Um, but for two, Christianity grew up in a pluralistic pagan society where the emperor was having, you know, public orgies, uh, married his horse, you know, uh, was was involved in active pogroms against the church, and Paul says all the authorities were ordained by God, submit to them. So that seems pretty different, doesn't it? You know, that that doesn't seem to line up with our approach. So I, I I've probably gone far afield. All right. So uh, what is Christian nationalism? <laughs> yeah, Christian nationalism is is the belief that um, God has a will for America as a country that, that God wants America to be governed by biblical values and that um, we serve God when we become active politically in order to achieve that end. So, um, Christian nationalists, there are are two strains. Really, there's the more, um, practical, pragmatic side, the more politically active side. So you have Christian nationalism um, takes the form of demonstrating, lobbying, bringing political influence to bear, getting out the vote, promoting particular candidates, um, publishing voter guides, rallying church members around um, political positions and causes. That's one side of Christian nationalism. The other side is um, more what's called uh, dominion theology, and that's the Pentecostal side. And that's the belief that God wants. It's, you know, these these work together, but it's the belief that God wants us to bring the kingdom into this realm through prayer, but also through personal advancement in our own field. So, you know, this is... uh, more, I guess, religious, spiritual, more grassroots. So, uh, someone who is of of this dominion theology ilk would say, "Yes, uh, we do need to bring the kingdom to bear in the secular realm, but we need to do it at every level, and not just on a political level, but also in the arts. So, we need mm-hmm. to have there, we need to have Christian movies, Christian art, Christian music." We need to have uh, an education. We need to have Christian education. We need to rise to, you know, in the educational field to a place of influence where the secular uh, movers and shakers in that discipline are paying attention to us, Mm -hmm. where we're bringing Christian ideals to bear in education to the point that the world's saying, hey, maybe we need to stop and and start applying Christian values to our approach to education. Mm -hmm. So um, local governments... All of this law enforcement, military, in every, in every realm you can imagine, we want, you know, we want there to be Christian platoons in the army. We want there to be Christian CEOs mm-hmm. at every company. Um, and so there's a grassroots mm-hmm. attempt to kind of shape. And, uh, and i guess maybe all of that sounds good to people on the surface yeah
1: it seems benign uh, i think on the surface at least so maybe let's 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 dive into why that might be yeah. wrong thinking we're certainly we're certainly trained to think that we're you know our calling is to influence uh, the culture for christ and to exhibit christ in how we conduct ourselves in our professional Public lives, not just in our private lives, but also in our public lives and our professional lives. That seems like a good thing, right? That mm-hmm. seems like advanced Christian thinking, right? Right. It's not just private and personal. It's also public and professional, and we uh, we bring Christ to bear in how we uh, conduct ourselves. Right. Um, so where do we cross the line? And we've 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 gone across uh, the line into Christian nationalism. Sure. Where have we erred?
0: Yeah. So let's say let's say somebody out there is, um, they're just really gifted as maybe an orator and a leader. They have a real political instinct and they're, and they're a believer in Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, just people tend to want to follow them and they, they're influential. Um, and they feel like, well, I, I really feel like I should go into politics. Okay. Now, How does how does one become a Christian politician? And and I think it's easy when I say things like this, it's easy for people to assume I'm saying we need to retreat from public life. And I'm I'm not saying that. Um, But what I what I am saying is that a a good Christian politician is and you and I had this conversation a long time ago um, is really no different from a good Christian truck driver, right? or a real good Christian carpenter or whatever trade you might think. So let's just say that you're a um, frame carpenter and you're a Christian. How do you live out your faith, right? Well, uh, someone can say, well, as a a Christian, I'm going to, as a Christian carpenter, um, when someone hires me to build their house, I'm going to integrate a cross into all of their final, um, trim work so Mm -hmm. that everywhere they look in their house, they have to, they have to look at the cross. Mm -hmm. Does that make a good Christian carpenter?
1: (laughs) I would say it does not.
0: Right. Okay. So you're hired by a Muslim and you know, and you're like, well, you know, Hey, I, I know I'm sought after as a Christian carpenter. But one thing you need to know about me is, is that everywhere you look in your house, there's going to be these crosses in, Mm -hmm. in the trim work, you know? Um, and if they don't like it, well, that just shows how evil and wrong they are, you know. And maybe they don't hire me, but that's, that's just me carrying my cross, right? I'm mm-hmm. just being persecuted. Um, or would you say a, a good Christian carpenter is somebody who they have attention to detail and they use the best materials. And even if it costs them uh, an extra day and they make less money on the job, you know, they have to tear something out because it went wrong. Uh, and no one would have known. It mm-hmm. just would have been covered up by the sheetrock. But they knew, mm-hmm. and so they they were gonna they're gonna cut that out and they're gonna build because they are building a house for Jesus, another house for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which one of those is more yeah. in line with the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the latter. Right, and so uh, it doesn't mean that that person at some point, you know, someone's gonna say, "Whoa, what did you just do? Did you just tear all that out?" And it's like. I just realized that that wall was half an inch out of, out of plumb when it got down to the other end. And I just couldn't, I couldn't bear to put that, you know, just close that job up and let someone sheetrock over it. And you're like, man, I would have known. And you're like, well, I don't work for them. I work for somebody that does know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now you, now you have this opportunity, as Peter says, to give an answer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now you are adorning the gospel. You're not making enemies unnecessarily. Um, let me. Uh, so, a Christian politician is that one? That is that somebody that goes through and they, they put the Ten Commandments up. They say, "Hey, if you elect me, there'll be you know the Ten Commandments will be over the door of every government building." Um, or is it somebody who <clears throat> executes? just laws who refuses to accept money from special interests uh, who will not participate in quid pro quo um, who represents their constituency and uh, even when the constituency potentially you know their their preference would be to do something else you know Um, to me that that is somebody Uh, So if you had somebody in Washington that nobody could find any dirt on at all, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that person could exist, Mm -hmm. but if they could, nobody can find any dirt on them. Everybody knows. I mean, just the, the very gravitas of their presence, because this is the one person who cannot be bought, cannot be enticed, cannot be manipulated, coerced, controlled. Whatever happens, you know that they say what they mean and they do what they say, um, whether they walk around waving a you know Christian flag or you know have a big cross on their lapel or whatever, everybody knows they're different, and mm-hmm. that they're executing their office in a way that's faithful.
2: Yeah.
0: I, to me, that's a Christian politician.
1: Right. Right and and you're describing someone who doesn't seem to be advancing the aims of Christian nationalism they're just seeking to serve to to to, to emulate Christ in how they conduct themselves and they're seeking to the, the good of society right the good of the whole they're seeking uh-huh. to you know to to do justice
0: right right and then then that begins to fulfill this this kind of metaphor where Jesus says the kingdom is, is like yeast hidden it's hidden in 60 pounds of dough That it's not coming out there and, you know, trying to rally numbers and uh, put pressure on politicians and try to get our own policies enacted. But it is this quiet revolution that's going from person to person Mm -hmm. as, you know, someone's convicted by this other person's honesty. Maybe you have another politician. He's corrupt and um, he's. He's got a drinking problem. He's on his third wife. You know, he's been giving away his soul for the past 20 years. And he sees this other person and it just finally, the juxtaposition between him and that person is too much.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he just says, I don't care what it costs me. I just need to know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want what you have. And maybe, you know, he just publicly comes out, he confesses everything he's done. Maybe he faces legal ramifications and stuff. But the now the world is put on notice you know, that there's something else happening. Um, it's when somebody tries to, because here's what happens is, is if I think that I need to get influence and then I need to use the influence for good, that narrative will lead people to corruption every time because in the name of gaining influence or retaining influence, they begin to hide they're wrongs. They cut corners, maybe little corners at first. Then they realize, oh, I, I did something. I don't think that was kosher. Um, let's let's try to get that, you know, out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. And now they now they're serving the enemy, and they don't even know it. And they think, well, we need to keep. You know, I need to stay in office. I'm the one the people have chosen. I have this platform. I need to advance this platform. You know, maybe they're sleeping with their secretary you know, and their aides are covering it up, you know. Um, But that's okay because he's championing the right cause and this cause is too important to let go. And he's making some major strides and policies are about to change. And sure, you know, he's got a little bit of a side interest. There's this um, conservative business owner that's been floating him money and paying for trips and sending him and his mistress on you know to some island or something but nobody's going to talk about that because he's he's doing good right and that's just demonic and that's what and this priest, is the stuff that's
1: in the news I mean this right. is the kind of stuff we've seen over and over again
0: right right and so you know we talk about how we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and I and uh, so Romans 12 1 it, it talks about offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then we talked about how beginning in verse 3 of Romans 12 that that there's an explanation of what that's like, right? Use this grace and, and the gifts that you have and, and offer them to one another. That's how we give our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so Paul unpacks Romans 12.1 in Romans 12.3 through about verse 10 or so. Or, um, you know, through 11... But Romans twelve two and, and we're as familiar with this one, uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And, and really it's proved through testing is the, is the Greek there. It had to do with metallurgy. So you had to kind of metal, and you wanted to prove how, how uh, refined it was or how pure it was. And you're going to have to you know, put it through the fire. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's speaking of, of this will of God being brought into the, the open, Uh, you know, and so I I think that Romans 12 one addresses our life within the Christian community. And so Romans 12 three through, I guess we'll just say through verse 13, it, it expands on that and explains it. How do we offer our bodies to God a living sacrifice? Well, if every one of God's people is a priest, then we're offering our bodies to one another in service as we use our gifts, okay? And that's what that passage is about. Romans 12, two, don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Then you will be able to prove through testing what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Oftentimes we'll read this and we'll say, well, if I'll just be devoted to God enough, I'll finally know what he wants me to do, and then I can do it, right? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you already know what God's will is. But I want you to go and demonstrate its beauty, its perfection. Because everyone in this world is looking for the remnants of shalom. Mm -hmm. They're looking for what we've lost,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and they don't even know it. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is hungry for him. They don't know what they've lost. But if they see it, some of them will recognize it. And so he's saying, look, let's take a totally different approach to the public sphere. Okay? And so this really is talking about the... If we want to talk about the divide between secular and sacred, then it runs between Romans 12.1 and Romans 12.2. Romans 12.1 is... The sacred is the community. And we do that to please God. Remember, notice that the word pleasing is used twice. Romans 12, 1, holy and pleasing to God.
1: Offer your bodies. Right. As worship. Right. That's what's pleasing to God, pleasing to
0: God. But then in Romans twelve two, he says, you're going to prove through testing what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Who is God's will pleasing?
1: What do you think? Well, I've heard you talk about this before, so I think I know what you're going to say. It's kind of cheating. Romans 12.1, it's uh, pleasing to God. And Mm -hmm. Romans 12.2, it's pleasing to people.
0: Right, right. I mean, why would God's own will be pleasing to him? You know, I mean, certainly people are pleased when their will is done, but we've already talked about offering something pleasing to God. But now he's saying that this will of God, when it comes forth, it's good, pleasing, and perfect, that there's, there's something paradoxical about the will of God. That that's why our minds have to be renewed because it's something that wouldn't occur to us. There's something that seems counterintuitive about the will of God that, that when someone hears it, they think, no, that that's not good. We can't do that, right? So let's just take that politician and, and he's corrupt and he's been doing all this and now he's, he thinks he should come clean. And there's a massive paradox that comes up. All of his you know, the, his inner circle, they know about his dirt. They've been helping him hide it. And he says, guys, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Are they like, yeah, you're right, right? They're like, that's suicide, don't do that, mm-hmm. right? If Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and I'm gonna be executed, what do we say? God
1: don't, forbid. Don't do that. Yeah.
0: So how do we? If that is God's will, then how do we demonstrate that that God knew better than you did? You know? Doing it. Doing it anyway. Okay? And and so he says, go and and, and have this new mind. This something take a totally different approach. And that's what irritates me about Dominion theology and um, um Christian nationalism is that they all have this notion that Good gets done through the exercise of power
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and that is antithetical to all of the message of scripture. You want to talk about biblical values, right? So you have King Saul and you have David, okay? Mm -hmm.
2: Uh,
0: If you remember all those stories, right? So here's David and what does David have on his side as the shepherd boy? Right. He's got the Lord on his side. Right. You come to me with a, you know, a spear and a shield, and I come to you in the name of the living God, right, of mm-hmm. Yahweh. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, the people quote Psalm 121. I think they, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's only one person throughout scripture who says, I come in the name of the Lord was David they are welcoming the Davidic Messiah and the Davidic Messiah comes not with sword or shield but in the name of the Lord and that is that is the difference that there is this humility that there's this willingness to be outnumbered to make counterintuitive decisions to take a totally different approach that everyone is sure will not work and um, to see it work So crucifixion is not the way to save the world. Okay. Let's not take that approach. Let's find something else, Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the problem is, is that Christian nationalism, dominion, theology, all of this makes sense from a worldly standpoint. But worldly wisdom, according to James, is sensual and demonic. I mean, there's no redeeming it, uh, and so we can make whatever case we want for all the good we're going to do once we amass enough power. But in the process of amassing that power, we've already forfeited our souls.
1: Mm-hmm. It, <coughs> Christian nationalism, the mindset rejects rejects the call to take up our cross and follow after Christ in the, in the pattern of crucifixion right. and resurrection. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of it, it kind of rationalizes that. Well, since Christ has gone to the cross and has been raised, now he we're in Him and we have authority in Him, and we should take that take up that authority that He's given us and rule. Mm-hmm. When actually the call is through is through uh, death to self, right. uh, cruciform love. Only out of that will we experience uh, spiritual authority, true spiritual authority. Right, right. So. I'm going
0: to unpack Romans 12, 2, and then I'm going to take up what you just said. Okay. So let's, um, so Romans 12, 2, he says, renew your mind. Now we think renew your mind is go read the Bible, find commands and do what it says. Paul gives us what renewing your mind is. Okay. In 12:14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse,
2: mm-hmm.
0: rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay. And that, to me, this is, it's a very challenging call. Look, it's easy to rejoice when your friends rejoice. It's easier to mourn when your friends mourn. You don't have to be told to do that. It's when your enemies suffer something, they and you grieve with them. It's when they are promoted, when good happens to them, and you celebrate with them. You know? So let's say you've got this, this dirty dog in your office, and you know he's just a weasel, you know? And, um, and he gets promoted. And, and you're just like, man, there's just nothing good, you know, and everything's wrong. And you could just be over there and sulk and, you know, call out your boss and everything. Or you could just, you know, bring champagne to the party and pop the cork and, you know, and say, man, I'm happy for you. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you're, you're getting what you wanted. And mm-hmm. um, which one of those seems like renewing your mind?
1: The latter, right. which, which, which can only happen if you have a, a, have a mindset enriched by the gospel. Yes. God is taking care of me. God has provided for me. I'm already rich in him. Right. I don't have to have that promotion. And so I can, you know, celebrate another person's success. Exactly,
0: exactly. It To me, the there's nothing renewed about lobbying and marshalling and organizing and protesting and demonstrating and, getting out the vote and all this is something that the world does. They do it. You know, community organizers are not limited to the church. Mm-hmm. The only thing limited to the church is somebody who would bless those who, who persecute them curb, you know, bless and do not curse. They would rejoice with those who rejoice. They would mourn with those who mourn. You see, we're, we're there mourning with our own people. We participate in a sectarian divide in society. No wonder people don't like the church. We, we their disdain. You know, we need to we need to do things that are confusing first.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No one's confused when Christians support other Christians. Everyone's like, "Yeah, that's their sect, and our, this is my sect, and we are opposed to one another, and we're going to do what we can to defeat one another and undermine one another." And everyone understands that game. You know, no one's confused when someone kicks the soccer ball toward the opposing goal, right? So just because you're kicking the ball that way and I'm kicking the ball this way, we're still the exact same. Mm-hmm. But if I decide, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to play this game or whatever, you know, then now everybody's like, wait, what's happening? Now you start beginning to disrupt and upset the, the way of things. Now real revolutions happening because now you are um, undermining the assumptions that human society is based on now you you will draw persecution from people who think the whole social order is going to collapse if everybody if people keep joining your movement because we have to you know things have to be predicated on self-interest and greed or it's going to fall apart and if you guys don't play that game then how can we ever build a society together and we're like well we don't really care honestly i mean our society's coming you know we're building a society here you can join us um but also, we look forward to a day because the thing you're a part of is a dumpster fire.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's not. And and a, and, a, the, and Christian nationalism can't say that about America. No. I mean, it had It really needs to save America, and it needs America to be preserved and or to be recovered or made great again. Or you know, uh, but if it, so, it requires this biblical worldview in which America is is Babylon. We're exiles in Babylon. Uh, our society, as you said, is is coming. You know, mm-hmm. our society is the church and the coming kingdom of God. Right. But without that biblical worldview, um, we're susceptible to the the vision of Christian nationalism. Sure.
0: Well, and we're, we're moralists. We just have a different set of morals. So LGBTQ um, cause is a moral cause.
2: Mm-hmm
0: akin to civil rights, at least in the minds of those who are behind it, and and I understand it. Um, and I mean, the problem with a lot of this, you know, as you as we pursue Christ, um, we realize that we're going to alienate both sides of every argument because Jesus seems to not be on either side. He seems to take up both sides and transcend both sides. So. I, I mean I see the case to be made on both sides of, of most arguments um, and I understand that there is a, a real heart of compassion and a desire for justice among the LGBTQ community, okay, and those who would be their allies, I understand that. Um, I understand the religious right, the desire to see good and just things happen and act just laws that we think are, are rooted in, in biblical assumptions, I understand that, you know, that, that's fine. It's just that both of those are, um, they're just two sides of the same coin. And that coin is that, that this is all about advancing a set of morals and virtues, building a society based on those morals and virtues that I think are important, and using all of the influence I have to get other people to adopt and live by those morals and virtues. Um, and yet, as we've been saying, there's really only one in the Christian system, there's really only one value set. And that is this faith, right? The faith of the son and the love that comes from it. But you can't build a society in a fallen world on that because this, this eternal fellowship that we've been called to be a part of presumes a mutuality. Mm hmm. Right, And so we've been called to, to, to this audacious approach to life where we cast ourselves on God, where we have seen his faithfulness and now we reciprocate. Mm-hmm. And there's a mutuality and we, we've, we've taken a hold of the hand that, that's holding us, right? And, and, then, and then it becomes even more audacious as we reach out to somebody else who's, who's done the same thing. And we extend to them this, this unguarded assumption. I'm just going to pour myself out into you, knowing that even if you don't reciprocate God's will, God is going to cover that, right? Mm-hmm. But when you go out into the world now that this, um, the substrate that holds all that together doesn't exist, okay, you can assume that when you reach out to somebody in an unguarded way in the world that they will exploit you. Mm-hmm. Right, And so the, the world has to live by a set of virtues and values that, where people are being forced to do what somebody else thinks is the right thing. That, that is how society works in a fallen world. But when we go out and we think we're going to use quote-unquote Christian values to affect that realm, we necessarily import that fallen approach into the Christian community. Mm hmm. And and now the lines are blurred and we begin to use coercive tactics. You know, we use majority rule. So three out of the five elders have voted that this is going to go forth. The other two just have to lump it. Right. We we start to we start to organize. We start to have these uh, we start to move forward as as a movement behind a leader as, as opposed to individuals who are. Um, moving in step with the shepherd we start to go forth as a front and now we're just the same as the world there's really no difference there's no renewal of the mind and you said something earlier that this I that that we start as people who are accepted by God who are empowered by God and and we go forth from there and so here's what, here's what's troubling to me about Christian nationalism about dominion theology is that, that the narrative is that there are wars to be won battles, you know, um, to be victorious in, that there's a hill to be taken for Jesus. Okay. And that is the opposite of the Christian message. The Christian message is, you are already a conqueror. If you have faith in Christ, you are already an heir, a king, and that your job isn't to acquire, achieve, accomplish. Your job is to be faithful and, and to stand in the victory that you have. You know, we, we have this, you know, there's, there's a, just a known, um, I don't know what the, what you would call it. Let's say that there is a known response to a perceived threat, right? That you have a choice. If the if threat is coming at you, there are two things you can do. What are they?
1: Uh, fighter, uh, fight or right. flee.
0: Right. Fight and flight, right? That's mm-hmm. everything. Animals, uh, every, we assume that, mm-hmm. right? So we perceive a threat. Now, if you're going to fight, and that's like going forward, right?
1: You're going to advance. hmm
0: if you're going to flee, you're going to go backward. Mm-hmm. What does the Bible call us to do?
1: Stand. Yeah. <laughs> there's a third one, right? Turns exactly. out there's a third
0: one, right? And so in the in the dilemma of fight or flight, the gospel says neither. It says stand. And so to stand is to be unmoved. It's to it's to bless those who persecute us.
1: Is this like Moses stand and see the deliverance the Lord will give you this day? Yeah. It's yeah. like stand and trust. God has this right
0: right and and so the great danger and and what grieves me is is like the rhetoric of the religious right is often they use this word stand, but what they mean is fight, fight right and and that is not that's not the call. the call is to stand because if the call were to fight that would assume that Jesus left something undone
1: Now if I fight, am I fighting? am I fighting and being a, a misguided Christian nationalist if I go vote, uh for or against a cause, you know, if I had the opportunity to vote against uh the sort of like the let's say let's say we we had a vote in the in Arkansas about a year ago to legalize recreational marijuana and so let's say I've thought about that and I've decided, you know, it's probably not the best thing for society. I think I'm going to go vote against that. Yeah. And maybe there's a lot of the rhetoric in the Christian community a year ago about how we should make sure to vote against that. There was. I mean, Christian people sure. I knew were going yeah. around trying to make sure they got they got their Christian church members, their Christian friends to go vote against that. Right. Now, let's say I vote against it. Um, Am I being a Christian nationalist when I do that? Maybe,
0: uh, or maybe not. Like, if you vote against it because you think it's outside of God's will for the nation, then you're a red Christian nationalist. Mm -hmm. If you vote against it because you think it's unhealthy for the society that you have to inhabit— then you're just a good citizen. Mm-hmm. And, and so it all has to do with the reasons, uh, you know, that we have to keep that partition between the secular government and the kingdom of God. And I, I know that sounds messed up to people who are talking about integration and, and we do integrate our faith into the public sphere, but it's only as we as individuals live consistent with our own conscience. That's how it crosses over not how we try to force others to come in line with what, with what we think are biblical virtues. Um, if we do that, then we are become oppressors because not even God is doing that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, God insists on the obedience of faith. The mm-hmm. kingdom of God moves forward on the obedience of faith. And if somebody doesn't have faith, then we cannot presume obedience from them. And if we do, then we are um, becoming the new oppressor. Let me give you an example. So, when I was in Albania several years back, and I, and it was summer, and they don't have air conditioning there, and at least not much, uh, and so the windows are open. Four in the morning, this guy's on a loudspeaker, bellowing
2: mm-hmm.
0: from a minaret, and I'm like, what in the? You know what? You know I'm like, how in the world? That is so rude. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine if I, you know, I got a big car with tricked out speakers, and I just, man, I just love this song, and I park in front of your house, and I just blare it at four in the morning, and you come out, and you're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, this song is amazing, and you're like, it's not amazing at four in the morning, man, you know, and I mean, and I'm just like, everybody needs to hear this song. And what if it's a great song? What if it's an amazing song? What if everybody really should hear it and appreciate the song? Does that give me the right to blare it at four in the morning? And, and so there, there is a real um, disdain for the value, the volition of another person in that call to prayer. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's woven into a religious system that is not predicated on the gospel. How dare we take similar approach, similar methods and tactics to impose and impress The obedience of faith on those who don't share.
1: Mm. That's a good point to end on. Thanks everybody for being with us today. We hope this was helpful. It's been a confusing issue for me. We hope that maybe this brought some clarity to your thinking about it. Please, we'd love to discuss it with you. Email us. Maybe we can strike up a conversation. Discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com.